Well, what do we do in a city full of idols? Does that sound like a strange question? How many of you see idols when you go to work in the morning or you go to coffee in the morning or you wake up slowly and enjoy your retirement in the morning? How many of you see a world filled with idols? Yeah, a couple of us. And I think in speaking about that, we're, we're, we're being a little figurative, right? Metaphorical. Because an idol is actually a, a stone or wood or, or you know, precious metal image that's made to look like a god, and that is actually connected to a god, in a sense. And if you remember in your Ten Commandments, uh, they, the first two are pretty similar, right? It's, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. So when Paul walks into Athens, and Athens, by the way, is known the world over in, in this day, in Paul's day, as probably the most idol-filled city in the entire Roman Empire. So Paul walks into Athens, and it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And if anything, our English translation is underselling what's being communicated to us here. If you've ever been to certain parts of the world, they are filled with physical idols, aren't they? Uh, Southeast Asia in particular, maybe India, uh, places where uh, pantheism or Hinduism has a huge impact, uh, it's a huge place in the local culture. These are religions that utilize idols in one way or another. And you might see them everywhere you go or everything that you do. But as a number of you, I think, are picking up, we don't live in a culture exactly like that. We don't have like a statue and go, look, God. But instead, we have all sorts of other things that we may not actually literally call God, but serve in the place of God in our lives. In the West, we talk a lot about, well, money can be an idol, right? I can give my love and worship and service and devotion to money. We talk about uh, status, right? We especially live in an age of status, don't we? There are people who are famous for being famous in our culture. Uh, That's been said numerous times about the Kardashians, Kim Kardashian and her sisters and whoever else is on there. I won't ask you if you've ever watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians. That's between you and the Lord. But in any case, fame, status can become an idol. Success can be an idol for us, can't it? Something that we worship. Did I get that promotion at work? Can I go back to my high school or college or whatever reunion and tell everyone about all that I've accomplished in my life? See, we do live in a world that, at least figuratively, is filled with idols. It's filled with things that we and the people around us are tempted to and sometimes actually do offer our devotion, and ultimately, our worship to them. What do we do in a city full of idols? I think the question that faced Paul is the same question that faces you and I. Now, do I have any slides here, uh, Yvonne? So let me, take you, let me remind you of where we've been. Okay, if you can see the map up here on the far right, is, you know, it's, north is up, so 
on the far right is to the east, and you can see Syria and Judea. That's, you know, down south there on the east side is the Holy Land. And Paul has uh, started in Antioch, which is at the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. You can't see the actual city name, but that's where it is. He's traveled all the way through Cilicia, Galatia, Asia, crossed uh, the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. And the last couple of weeks, we talked about Paul's ministry in Macedonia. And especially last week, we talked about him in Thessalonica and Berea. And remember, Paul was reasoning from the scriptures with the people there. He's reasoning from what we would call the Old Testament, opening it up to people and saying, this is what God has done. Everything that he's promised, he's accomplished in Jesus. And we ended with the people in Berea. The people in Berea uh, were thought to be more noble than the rest because Paul said, this is what Scripture says. And they looked at Scripture and says, is that really what it says? As opposed to Paul's opponents in Thessalonica who said, this isn't what we want Scripture to say. So we're going to oppose Paul. They threw him out of Thessalonica. They followed him to Berea and got him kicked out of Berea. And now he is in Athens, in Achaia. Of course, we know Athens is part of Greece. But the Roman province is Achaia. And he's right there, not all the way down south, but uh, uh, the second to last stop there on the map. He goes, Athens, next he'll be in Corinth next, next week for us, I suppose. Uh, so let's go to the next slide. This is where Paul would have gone. Uh, this is the Acropolis in Athens. And you can see the back of the Parthenon from where we're standing. You've probably heard of the Parthenon. You've seen the front of it more often than the back. But I wanted to give you a perspective of, of what, Athen, what the Acropolis, the highest point. Acropolis, by the way, polis is the Greek for city. Acra is like height. So the highest point in the city. That's where all the civic buildings would go. That's where the military would go if they were ever under siege because it's easiest to defend the high point in the city. So that's where all the important stuff was. Let's go to the next slide. This, again, is the other side uh, of the Acropolis. And this is taken from an old temple of Zeus that's all broken down. The last picture was taken from the Areopagus, which we often call Mars Hill. Now let's take a look at the next slide. This is the Areopagus. Uh, Areopagus in Greek means the hill of Ares. Ares is the Greek god of war. Mars is the Roman god of war. That's where we get the name Mars Hill. So we're about to hear Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Actually, we did. Mary shared it with us. And this is maybe the, uh, behind the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the single most famous sermon in history, one of the most studied sermons in history, certainly. It's striking, isn't it? How, isn't it fascinating how Paul approaches these scholars and philosophers and he talks, I see the altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. And he goes on to relate the true story of God and who he is with the false story that the people of Athens had believe. That's what we're going to unpack this morning. That's what's going to help us understand how do we live in a city full of idols. So I think that's my last slide. Oh, no, here's the Temple of Zeus that I told you about. So all over, you get a, a sense, right? The Parthenon was the temple to Athena. Here's the temple to Zeus. If you walk up on the way to Mars Hill, there's just altar and altar and altar and altar and altar everywhere. A couple of contemporaries of Paul's said uh, that, again, Athens 
was, had more altars in it, more temples in it than any other city. Okay, that's it for the pictures. What do we do in a city full of idols? Well, first, let's take a look at how Paul responds. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. First, Paul felt something, didn't he? Paul felt something. And the word that's translated in the NIV as greatly distressed means his spirit was actually provoked within him. And this is the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses whenever God is upset at his people's ventures into idolatry. So maybe maybe the most helpful way of translating this is Paul felt a godly jealousy. Is anyone used to thinking of jealousy as a good thing? Normally we don't, do we? But in Paul's case, it was. John Stott says about jealousy, it's the resentment of rivals. Does that sound right? The resentment of a rival. And whether it is good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains, or sports is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in that area. God did not properly make me to be the world's greatest soccer player. And that's evident not only in the fact that I'm not a great soccer player, but also in the fact that there are lots of other great soccer players in the world. If, on the other hand, a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. Get what this says about our relationship with God? If jealousy can be godly when it involves our straying away after idols, if God experiences a righteous jealousy when that happens, it's because that idol, whatever it is, whether it's gold, silver, wood, stone, or whether it's one of these metaphorical things we're talking about, wealth, prestige, honor, respect, success, anything else, God's jealousy at that thing taking his place in our lives is righteous because that intruder has no right to our devotion in the way that God does. That's what it means to be God. So Paul feels a godly jealousy in the city of idols. And you and I, we can feel a godly jealousy as well in our city of idols. We can see that people are giving their devotion to things that are not really God. And we can understand that God is moved to jealousy by that. God says, no, you properly belong in relationship with me. And we can have a sense of compassion as well, can't we? In saying, that thing that you are worshiping will never satisfy you. It will never love you back. Sticking with the sports metaphors this morning, there's a movie that came out uh, almost 20 years ago called Fever Pitch. Jimmy Fallon, Drew Barrymore, and Jimmy Fallon's a huge Red Sox fan. He never misses a game. He is obsessed with the Red Sox. And at one point, you know, he meets Drew Barrymore, and they fall in love, but now he loves two things, the Red Sox and Drew Barrymore. And as some of you may have experienced in your own marriages, your love of the two, of the woman or maybe the man in your life, can't always mesh well with your love of sports or whatever else it may be. Sometimes something has to give. And for Jimmy Fallon, he always chose the Red Sox. And at one moment, 
He's talk, He's a math teacher at school. He helps coach baseball. And one of the kids he's coaching, he's, he's unloading how it's so unfair that, that my girlfriend wants me to give all of my attention to her. And, you know, I just want to root for the Red Sox. And he says, well, let me ask you something. I can't remember his name, Mr. So-and-so. Let me ask you something. You love the Red Sox. Have they ever loved you back? Because, see, the Red Sox, the Mariners... The 49ers, the Seahawks, all of them. None of them can actually satisfy our need for love, can they? You can do it for a few moments. I'll tell you, being a sports fan myself, the way this works, you can apply this to things other than sports, by the way. But you get what you're looking for, right? You get the victory, you get the win. Maybe you even win the Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever it is. And the next morning, you need it again. Because it wasn't enough. You need to go out and compete for it again next year. And you will live and die again by the victories and the losses. And it's true in the rest of our lives as well. You get that promotion at work and you thought, surely I'll be happy now. And you find that it's still not enough to satisfy. Only God can fully satisfy us. And so when we look out at people, we recognize that they are not just worshipers of idols but they are slaves to the idols that they worship. And that ought to move us to compassion. That's what it moved Paul to. See, when Paul, was, his spirit was provoked within him, he was greatly distressed. He felt that godly jealousy because the city was full of idols. What did he do? Did it lead to angry and categorical denunciations? You're all horrible, terrible people. You deserve to burn in hell, and I hope you do. Did it lead to him saying, look at what your worship of idols is costing me. It's making me uncomfortable. It's making me angry and frustrated. You're passing laws that I don't like because you worship idols. Did he go and complain about what it cost him? Or did he respond in a different way? Did it lead to name-calling and abuse? No. It says instead that he reasoned In the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. He had compassion on the people surrounding him. Instead of his godly jealousy leading him to a condemning anger, it led him to a saving compassion. I'm going to save as many as I can, says Paul. Because who does idolatry hurt the most? It hurts the idol worshiper more than anyone else. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I read a biography of his a number of years ago. And one of the things that I was struck by is that when Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking against racism, he would say not only racism is bad for the people that it's directed to, but he'd say racism is bad for the people who practice it. It distorts the image of God in them. It makes them not work right. And his conviction was we need compassion, not just for those who are suffering under racism, but also for the racist. That's why you could say things like darkness doesn't drive out of dark, darkness doesn't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Paul reasoned with the people. He shared the gospel with them. That was the cure. 
not as anger or frustration, not angry condemnation. When we see the brokenness and error of our own culture, what moves in our hearts? When you watch the news, are you angry or are you feeling compassion? Because one of those is the response of Jesus Christ. And the other is the response of the idol worshiper, whose devotion is given to something other than the Lord Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. There's still a place for anger in our world. A righteous anger, it's, uh, anger is one of the most difficult emotions of all because of how quickly and easily it masters us. But the righteous anger is the one that sees the harm that is being done and works, acts to address it. And to make it right. That's the righteous anger. So if, first of all, when we live in the city full of idols, we need to be motivated by a godly jealousy. Secondly, we ought to use every opportunity to communicate the gospel. And you know, this is kind of exciting to me because we can get creative here. I know that for a long time when we've gone out to tell people about Jesus Christ, what we've said is, what you need to do is say you're sorry for your sins, ask Jesus to live in your heart, and then everything will be fine. And there's a lot that's good about that description. There really is, but the problem is, first of all, the Bible never says anywhere you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, so I don't know exactly where we came up with that. But the more important issue is that it's not actually the way Paul or any of the apostles share the gospel. They do say we are sinners in need of repentance, but they always point to something else in doing this. We have to use every opportunity to communicate the gospel, not just the same old bland ones that we've used before. Paul here encounters some fascinating people. He encounters, uh, of course, Jews and regular old Gentiles, but he also encounters philosophers, Epicureans, and he encounters Stoics. They're actually here in the text uh, themselves. In verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Now, if you don't know what Epicureans and Stoics are, that's okay, first of all. Uh, you can still read and understand the Bible, even if you don't know everything that's going on. Uh, secondly, I wish Joshua Kerr was here today, because he has a PhD in philosophy, and he could really handle this. You're going to get the, like... The lower than the layman's view from me this morning. But I was doing some research. Let me tell you a little bit about the Epicureans and the uh, Stoics, just so we'll understand what we're talking about. To the Epicureans, they were primarily motivated by avoiding actions that produce pain. Okay, pain is the great evil. Now, of course, like, this is pretty common sense sort of stuff on the one hand. But here's what they say. The criterion of the good life, the way you know that you're living the good life, is pleasure, which can be achieved by avoiding the competitive life with the distress of jealousy and failure and by avoiding intense emotional commitments with the pain of emotional turmoil. So you got to walk through life kind of like a robot. I don't want anything to hurt me, so I will forego the great pleasures because there's a danger of pain there in pursuit of the smaller pleasures. Does that sound like the God that we believe in? Is God like, hey, come to me, and I will give you life, but just a little bit? Like, I don't want you guys to get overwhelmed. Is that what Jesus says? 
No, he says, come to me and I will give you abundant life. So here's an exciting entrance for the Epicureans, isn't it? You're worried about avoiding pain. Okay, that's not a horrible thing to be worried about. But you are, in your avoidance of pain, you're forsaking the great pleasures. And there is a God out there who has pleasure greater than you've imagined. That comes from the good life. That comes from right living. That comes from the gifts that he wants to give to his children. That comes out of his own store of life, which is so great that, well, we're going to have to get to that in just a minute because that's the end of the sermon. The Epicureans want to avoid pain. And in avoiding pain, they're also avoiding the great pleasures. Now, the Stoics, let's talk about them just for a moment. The Stoics basically say the world is totally outside of our control, and our job is just to figure out how to live in it without it hurting too badly, is sort of the idea. The world is essentially the playing out of events according to a fate that's completely out of our hands. Uh, We can't control the world, only ourselves. We hear that very thing often, don't we? I I heard somebody tell me once, uh, you know, no one can make you angry. To which I respond, you're making me kind of angry right now. (laughs) They say, no one can make you angry. What they mean by that is no one can force you to feel anything. It's your choice whether or not you will participate in that emotion they're bringing about. I think it's maybe overly simplistic. Not quite true, but there is truth in it. And I think the Stoics are grabbing onto that truth. There's nothing we can do about the world as it is. We just sort of have to suffer through it as best as we can. That's why we say if somebody, you know, is neither having great emotions of happiness or they're going through a really hard time and they are just bearing up really well, we say they're behaving stoically. That's where it comes from. So what does Paul do to these two different groups? Well, first of all, to the Epicureans, he gives a more compelling God. See, the Epicureans said, well, we just want to avoid pain and have pleasure. Where the Stoics said, whatever, pain comes, we're just trying to live through it as best as we can. We we want to avoid pain, we want to pursue pleasure. And there are gods out there, I'm sure, but we can't know anything about them because they're too great. Right? If if you were a god, would you want anything to do with us? No, of course not. So we get out of it. And Paul gives them a more compelling God with more compelling pleasures. The Epicureans believed, uh, again, the gods are so great. People in our culture show a similar belief, don't they? When they scoff at the idea of a god requiring worship. Is he so vain he needs me to worship him? But Paul shows instead that the true god is even greater than they could imagine, first of all. He's not just a superpowered human being. He's not Spider-Man. He is actually a whole different sort of thing altogether. He says to the Epicureans, uh, well, when Paul talks about worshiping in temples, he says, we know uh, the God who made the world, in verse 24, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Why? Because we can't give God anything. Think about it this way. If, If we build God a temple, we built it all out of his stuff with all the capabilities that he gave us. Is God going to be like, wow, thank you for giving me something I never had before. This is so great. Or is he going to go, look at what you did with all the stuff I gave you. Like, pat you on the head, maybe. I don't know. 
That's what it feels like, isn't it? And Paul is pointing out the absurdity of thinking the temples that we build can be so great that God will be impressed. But Paul shows instead that the true God uh, is greater than they can imagine. He is the life giver who loves us. What does Paul say? He is the creator, the God who made the world and everything in it. Does that sound like he's far away and doesn't care about us? No, he made a world that was perfect for our life. Did you know, uh, in order for a planet to be capable of supporting life as we know it, it has to be a certain distance from the sun, it has to have a certain atmosphere, it has to be a certain size, or at least within certain boundaries. We call this the Goldilocks zone. We have a world in the Goldilocks zone. Doesn't that tell us that there's a God who cares for us? He gives the Epicureans a more compelling God. There is a God who cares about us, who loves us, and he is greater for it. He gives the Stoics a more compelling God. Uh, To the Stoic pantheist, in other words, Paul declares that God and the world are not the same thing. Right? Fate, there's something here that's controlling everything, making everything out to be and it's mindless. We're not going anywhere. There's no order or reason or purpose to the world, according to the Stoic. And Paul says, no, that's not how this is. There's actually a God who is separate from the creation. And that impulse which pushes you to suppose that this world is governed by something else is actually a good impulse God has put in you. Pursue that, Paul says. Search and find that God. N.T. Wright uh, says that impulse uh, is the one that ought to lead you to reach out and grope for the real God who is indeed not far off. Paul uses their own true beliefs or their own beliefs that touch on truth, this may be even a better way of saying it, to encourage them to get rid of their idolatry. There is a better God out there than these idols that you're worshiping. Those things you're searching for, they can be found in the one true God. And now Paul tells them that they'll be accountable for this. This is where he gets to the climax of his message. He says, God may have allowed this nonsense idol worship for a time, but you yourselves know that he is nearer to us than we easily suppose. Paul actually quotes two pagan poets that the Stoics especially would have admired. He says, uh, first of all, in verse 28, for in him, uh, verse 27, he references a Stoic poem when he says, uh, God did this so perhaps we would seek out and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he directly uh, gives two direct quotes, for in him we live and move and have our being piece of pagan poetry. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul knows his culture well enough to be able to speak intelligently to it and identify the things that are good and true and point them on to the greater good and true things. What are some of those things we can do in our culture, right? Are we searching for peace as people? Are we searching for things like, how are we all going to live together when we're so different And it could be any sort of difference. It can be a difference in likes, 
right? Difference in personality. It can be difference in skin color. It can be difference in political affiliation. It can be all these differences. And how are we going to learn finally to get along together? Do you remember what Paul says in the book of Galatians that Jesus Christ himself is our peace and he reconciles in himself Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, all become one in him. Why? Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are made part of God's family. And before we could look at each other and say, man, you really stink. And you're nothing like me. And now in Jesus Christ, we say, oh, shoot, we all really stink. And Jesus is making us all like himself. Which means that I need you. And I need you. And I need you. And you need me. So that we can, each one of us, push each other on toward Jesus Christ. And you know what? This isn't an easy thing for us to do. we got to get rid of all of that old stuff in us, right, that says, let's fight and be angry about everything. I, there's a church in Exeter, and I don't say this to mock or demean them in any way, but they're called the Free Will Baptists. And I laugh every time I drive by because it's so... Uh, it's such a fighting term. It's such a fight. I don't know if you know this, but they're basically saying all the Calvinists are wrong in the name of their denomination. I don't know if you know what a Calvinist is either. That's okay. But isn't that just the point at the same time? These obscure arguments that divide us. But in Jesus Christ, there's no reason for that anymore. We're all part of the same family. We're all being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's a community thing that we do. 1 Corinthians 12, we are one body, together Christ's body, each gifted in a different way so that when we come together, people see Jesus more clearly than when we're apart. So we come together, we are formed more into the image of Jesus Christ than when we're apart. Folks, even if we get angry at each other, we have to find a way to make it work. Because if we don't, we will be less like Jesus Christ. The gospel really has the answers that we are searching for so desperately as a culture, as a society. We will be accountable for this. God won't allow us to give our devotion away for free forever. And the reason that we know this, and this is the climax, something has happened in the world that shows that this time is coming to an end, that the end itself has entered into our daily lives. A man has risen from the dead, and that rising from the dead proves that he is God's judge. We have to understand, first of all, just how hopeless Paul's argument is here. It's important to note that in the Areopagus, this wasn't just, this idea of resurrection wasn't just a ludicrous notion which every sensible person knew was out of the question. Are you talking about zombies, people rising from the dead? What's happening? It went directly against the founding charter of the Areopagus itself. In a 5th century BC play by the Athenian dramatist Aeschylus, which would have been well known in Paul's day, the god Apollo inaugurates the court of the Areopagus. And one of the things he says solemnly, and as it were blindingly, is that when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. It was in the founding charter of the group of people Paul was speaking to. 
This is an absolutely hopeless point he's trying to make to them. But Paul goes for it anyway. Why? Well, because it's true. Because it's true. Just like Ray was saying to the children, it is rock-solid truth. Paul could say that it was true because he had met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Peter and, and James and John and all the rest of the disciples could say it was true because they touched Jesus. They saw him after he died and he was alive again. Now, does it feel a little more difficult for you and me today? Any of you met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus or anywhere else physically in your life? Of course not. Of course you haven't. But we still have real fellowship with him today. Otherwise, what are we doing here? What are we about here? We actually meet Jesus every day. And we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us as well. And that's not a bad thing. Did you know Jesus actually spoke to you and me when Thomas said, I won't see unless I believe, and Jesus shows up in the Gospel of John, and he says, here, you know, look, I'm eating. I'm real. Touch the holes in my hand inside. See that it's really me, that I really died and I'm alive again. And Thomas falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. Way to go, Thomas. That was the right response in that situation. But Jesus isn't done with Thomas. He says, have you seen and now believed? I tell you, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Folks, the number of Christians who actually saw Jesus rise from the dead is at least 500. We know scripture tells us at least 500. But there are billions of Christians in the world today. We can still know that Jesus rose from the dead because we really meet him. Yes, spiritually. But also because we have the testimony of those who have gone before us. We find that it changes and it transforms our lives it really makes us different. That's why Paul ends with the resurrection, even though the Areopagus will mock him and think him a fool. As another New Testament scholar says, and it is resurrection which explains why Jesus is the coming judge. It isn't, the resurrection isn't just to prove. It's not, uh, this scholar says, any, it isn't anything so trivial as that the resurrection demonstrates Jesus' divinity, or even his human superiority. I mean, those are amazing things. How can you say that's, that's uh, trivial? But it's because of the how much more amazing it is that Jesus will judge. Rather, it is that with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. The world has begun to change and be transformed. In other words, his being raised from the dead is the start, is the paradigm case, the foundation, the beginning of that great setting right which God will do for the whole cosmos at the end. The risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. And through Jesus, everything else will be proved, will pass or fail. The time that God, will uh, that God will tolerate false worship has come to an end. All glory and authority belong to him because he is not only the creator, but the resurrector. It matters what we do, not because God is scoring our behavior like Santa Claus. Seriously, Santa Claus is the worst. Have you ever thought about how anti-Christmas Santa Claus is? 
Are you being good or bad? Because I'll only be nice to you if you're good. Is that how God treated us? What in the world does Santa Claus have to do with Christmas? Some of you I've lost, I know. It's like, I can't believe you said that. But really, God isn't scoring our behavior like Santa Claus. But instead, he is making us his children. He's making us belong to him. Because as even the pagan Greek poet said, we uh, are meant for him. It isn't one-sided, by the way. God made us for himself to enjoy us forever. And he also, we are made for him so that we might enjoy him forever. Augustine famously said it best. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. So the message of the gospel, has all this been hopeless? Paul comes to the end, he says, the linchpin is the resurrection, and the Areopagus says, that's the one thing we can never accept. There will be no great harvest of souls here. And indeed, many of them did sneer, if you read. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Folks, there is power in the gospel message. There is power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, more than our ability to prove with numbers and arguments and words. How do we live in a city full of idols? We remember who we are and what God has done. We practice compassion rather than contempt. We boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there is power in it. And we trust God that among all those we speak to, no matter how many say no, there is a Dionysius, there is a Damaris waiting.